in the Thessalonian church. They thought that the day of the Lord had already come. And so what he's going to show us in this passage, the Apostle Paul uh, is going to show us that the return of the Lord, or the day of the Lord cannot come apart from the return of the Lord when he comes in judgment. And that can't come until the unveiling of the Antichrist. And that can't come until the Spirit is taken out of the way, the removal of the one who restrains. In other words, we are not in the day of the Lord if we haven't seen the Antichrist uh, come into power, if we haven't seen his blasphemous self-deification and the Lord's subsequent judgment of him. We are not in the last times. And that's what Paul's point is in this passage. And so let's see if we can uh, follow his line of argument. Let me read our, the passage for us this evening. And... Um, and we'll try to get a sense of what he's trying to teach us. This is the Word of God. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason... God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Paul's main point here in these 12 verses is to show that that the day of the Lord has not come. Know with certainty that the day of the Lord has not come. First, in order for us to understand this, we have to understand what the day of the Lord is. What is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is a phrase that was used and understood by Old Testament believers to refer to the end times. The, the day of the Lord includes both a time of judgment and a time of what? Blessing, right? For the, for the Jewish day, their day began with darkness and ended with light. So their day actually began around 6 p.m., uh, and, and it ended at obviously the same time, so it was light when it ended. It was beginning to be dark when it began. And this is precisely what happens in the end times. It's going to begin with the time of darkness, judgment, and then it's going to conclude with the time of light, blessing. Okay? Can you think of what those two periods of time might be? The time of darkness would be the time of the what? Tribulation. And then the time of light would be the time of the what? 
the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And this is what the, the Old Testament writers understood to be the day of the Lord, this entire time period. And so what Paul is saying is that the day of the Lord has not come. Um, and, and, uh, and so that's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, why were the Thessalonians confused about it? Why were they confused about it? Well, apparently they had received a letter that was attributed to the Apostle Paul, that was supposedly from Paul, that explained to them that the day of the Lord had come and that Christ had already come. And Paul wanted them to know that he did not write that letter, that that letter was, was missing Paul's distinguishable um, handwriting that he does at the end of every letter. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So this is what they were supposed to look for. They wanted to find that the letter was from the Apostle Paul, in fact. Now notice verse 2 of chapter 2, because here's where we see that they apparently had received some other word, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So do you see the problem now starting to, starting to shape up here for us? Apparently they had been told by some sort of figure who was trying to come across as an authority, maybe even the Apostle Paul himself, as if the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul's saying, don't be confused about that. I write my distinguishing handwriting at the end of every letter, and that was not on that letter. So don't be confused about the day of the Lord. Notice the main command in this passage. It begins in verse 1. Now we request you, and then he gives some other information, and then it continues in verse 2. Now we request you that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. And then, about what? The end of the verse says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently this new end times fad had shaken them to the core. Maybe in this letter that they had received there was talk about persecution, that in the end times there's going to be persecution and you're experiencing it now. You're facing the day of the Lord. And um, Paul is saying, no, that's not in fact what happened. Now, again, this is not a timeline for the end times, but I think we actually can draw some support for our understanding of of how the end times do work. And the way I understand it and have taught it in our church uh, doctrine uh, based on our statement of faith, we believe as a church, is that Christ will come and rapture His saints prior to the tribulation. Seven-year time of great trouble. And then following the tribulation will be the Armageddon where Christ will defeat all of His foes. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The Antichrist will be put out of his misery and then for the next thousand years when Christ will reign on the earth. So the very first thing, the very next thing on what we could call the eschatological calendar is that Christ will rapture His saints. And I think we can, even though Paul doesn't lay that out, he doesn't say, okay, here's the very next thing, here's what happens after that. Um, instead, what, what he does, we can draw some support from our understanding from this passage. So notice... Um, Notice in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord. And I don't think he's talking about the rapture there. I think he's talking about general when, the Christ, when Christ actually comes to the earth. 
but he says from the coming of the Lord and our gathering together with him or to him. Now our gathering together to him would, I think, be referring to the rapture, the very next thing, I think, to happen in uh, really kicks off the end times. So here's the way that we can think about that. They are experiencing, the Thessalonians are experiencing persecution, right? If their persecution was a part of the day of the Lord, that is a part of, you know, they're some of the 144,000 or they're some of the part of the, the believing Gentiles who are being persecuted for their faith, what would Paul's message be to them? It would not be, you know, it hasn't come, but, you know, so just just uh, hang on for a little while. It wouldn't be that. You, you have to wait for the apostles. Instead, he was saying, if, if the end times is marked by persecution and you're in persecution, then just hang tight because Christ is going to come. That is, His rapture will come after the tribulation, for example. Some people believe that the rapture comes after the tribulation. Some people come, believe that it comes um, in the middle of the tribulation. And uh, instead, he says that the Lord's coming can't come until the apostasy comes. So, again, he's not proving the timing of the rapture. I'm just throwing that out there. I think that's a good support for, for our understanding of the end times. So, in the first two verses, Paul says two times, the day of the Lord has not come. He says, with regard to the coming of the Lord, don't be confused about it. And then at the end of the verse, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, and in other words, it hasn't come. And so he says, don't be confused about these things. Now in verse 3, he gives them another command, and this one is a little bit uh, trickier to understand. Think about this with me. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the coming of the Lord, will not come until the apostasy comes first. So think about that phrase with me. Let no one in any way deceive you. How can we stop deception? I mean, isn't the very nature of deception that we are being deceived? We don't know that we're, we're going the wrong way. But, but what Paul is saying is that deception can actually be avoided, can it? Let no one deceive you. Avoid being deceived is what he's saying. Now, this doesn't mean seem to make sense, right? I mean, if someone deceives me, I'm the victim. I can do nothing about it. I was deceived. So if you've ever been tricked like that, if you've ever been deceived, um, you understand, I think, that you can actually de- avoid deception. Because, yeah, we like to pass the blame on the person who deceived us, but a lot of times we pass the blame on ourselves, don't we? We think we should never let them take advantage of us. Maybe it's a neighbor, you know. We should have never let them borrow our lawn equipment or something. And now they moved out of town and they, they still have my lawnmower or something. Or suppose that you gave a beggar some money outside of Comerica Park and later saw him get into his Cadillac and drive away. You were deceived, but could that have been avoided? Right? So you were deceived because you believed a story... But that actually can be avoided, and all deception can be avoided, believe it or not. And that's what Paul is saying, is don't let anyone in any way deceive you. Here's what Proverbs 14:15 says, The naive person believes everything. The simple person believes everything. So that's actually gullibility when we're often deceived. That's going to happen to us. They're, even the best of us, right, we're still going to be deceived. 
uh, because some people are really good at conning. But, in general, we need to recognize that the simple believe everything. The naive person believes everything. And so we have to guard against being deceived. And Paul's saying the same thing with regard to their understanding of the end times. And so his point is we need to think through things before we come to a decision. Now, how do we know that the day of the Lord has not come? There are three ways we know, and I'm going to take these in reverse order. How do we know, I think that's what this passage answers, how do we know that the day of the Lord has not come? Number one, the day of the Lord cannot come apart from the powerful judgment of Christ. Verse 8. The day of the Lord cannot come apart from the powerful judgment of Christ. Look at verse 8 with me. Then that lawless one, we'll talk about who he is, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So, we know this time to be the battle of the Armageddon. That that the day of the Lord cannot come apart from a powerful judgment of the Lord, that Christ is going to come in great power. Revelation 19.15 talks about the coming of the Lord to the earth and that He's going to take part in the battle of Armageddon, at which time He will destroy the host of armies with the sword from His mouth. Apparently it's just with a word. Um, so, so for you, Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, you haven't seen the unmistakable coming. Of, you'll know when Christ is here in judgment. And you haven't seen that. And so the day of the Lord has not come. So the day of the Lord cannot come apart from a powerful judgment of the Lord. Number two, the day of the Lord cannot come apart from the unveiling of the Antichrist. So if we think about it in reverse order, the, the, uh, the fact that Christ is coming in judgment actually follows the unveiling of the Antichrist. So, so the day of the Lord, the powerful judgment of the Lord can't come until the, the Antichrist is unveiled. That's in verses 3 and 4 and then 9 through 12. Notice his grand entrance at the end of verse 3. There is this apostasy that comes first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This apostasy is him setting himself up in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so that has to come first. Before Christ comes in judgment, verse 8, the Antichrist is going to be unveiled. He's going to, to, have the, to take part in this apostasy. He's going to come in this grand entrance. The word apostasy is a word that simply means departure. And I don't think Paul is talking about the departure of saints, that is the rapture here, but rather the apostasy connected to the Antichrist. The departure from what? What do you think? From the truth, right? He's actually departing from the truth and he's exalting himself as God. And at which point, the end of verse 3 says that the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness is an accurate, uh, an accurate name for whom? The Antichrist, right? Because he personifies everything that is opposed to God. He's a man of lawlessness. The text that says that he will be revealed, which means to be unveiled, like in chapter 1, verse 7, when it talks about Christ being unveiled in glory. That is, he won't be created. You know, it's not that Satan will bring him into creation. He'll be a grown man, but he will be unveiled. He will be revealed to the rest of the world when he signs a peace treaty at the beginning of the tribulation with the Jews. 
and He allows them to resume worship in the temple, uh, they think that they're going to have basically a, a permanent access to the living God and over time He takes the throne in, in the temple and causes people to worship Him instead. That's the apostasy at the middle of the tribulation. But this promised peace will be followed by great fury. So He'll promise peace to all the Jews. Come, set up your temple. They set up their temple very quickly and then He moves to becoming, notice the end of verse 3, the son of destruction. He has no good will in mind. His goal is not to create peace, but to establish himself as the ruler over all creation. He is Satan's last ditch effort in Revelation 12.12 talks about woe to the earth when Satan is thrown down from the second heaven and when he's thrown down to the earth knowing that he only has a short time. He's going to Satan through the Antichrist is going to unveil his fury against all the earth. And it's not going to be a pretty time to be on the side of Christ as far as as far as uh, comfort and safety. So his grand entrance, the end of verse three, his blasphemous claim is seen in verse four. This Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he effectively names himself and claims to be the actual Messiah. He gets people to believe that that Jesus that had come a long time ago, he was a fake with all those other false messiahs that there have been in the past. I'm the real Messiah. And so, let me show you these great and powerful works. We're going to talk about some of His power that He has when we see in verse 9. But He exalts Himself to, to a place of, of, um, of worship that He doesn't deserve. He, he basically calls Himself the God-man, the Messiah, the one who is promised in the Old Testament. That's why He is the Antichrist. You know, Christ in the New Testament is the same word for Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay, so so he's actually the anti-Messiah. He's everything that the real Messiah is not, except for he actually acts like he is the real Messiah. He demands exclusive worship, which if you think about it, in, in the scope of religion today, no other, no religion uh, demands exclusive worship. They They're very ecumenical, and yet this man's going to stand up and say, you have to worship me and me only. I am the God to be worshipped. He takes a seat in the temple, temple and um, this forms the climax of godlessness at that time. The people have turned away from God. Many people will turn away from God. Notice his source in verse 9. Talking about Christ slaying him. But those that is the one, the lawless one, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So he comes on behalf of Satan's power. He, he is sourced in Satan. Satan is one who is rising up a, a, an Antichrist and who will bring him to power. Notice what kind of powers he has at the end of verse 9. With all power and signs and false wonders. His powers come in the form of false miracles that will be used to help convince people that He is who He says He is. He's saying that He is the Messiah of God and people are going to believe Him. And 
sadly, his, his ploy will generally work. Look at verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice why these people will perish. Yes, they are deceived. But it's because, the end of verse 10, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. His effect on humanity humanity will be unprecedented. And His power will be uh, really unmatched in human history other than by Christ Himself. He'll be able to set up a god, uh, an idol of Himself within the temple that actually is able to speak and breathe out fire and kill people. Uh, That's the kind of powers that Satan... Uh, employs him with, that empowers him with to be able to do these kind of miraculous things. And many people will, most people, I should say, will fall for his his devious ways. His damage is seen in verses 11 and 12. His damage, uh, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, that is these people who follow him, so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. In the midst of all these evil actions and motives, Paul says something very troubling for us in verse 11, doesn't he? You know, because we believe that God is good and we would die for that truth. That if someone said God is not good, we would, we would die for the fact that God is good because we know from His Word that He is. And yet we come across a verse like this and we have to reconcile it with what we believe, right? That God will send a deluding influence. You might think, well, maybe that means something other than what we think it means. But look at the end of the verse. It tells us exactly what it means. So that they will believe what is false. That's the kind of influence that God is going to send to these people. He's going to cause them in some way to believe what is false. So how should we understand this difficult phrase? God sends a deluding influence. Theologian Don Carson wisely points out that in all human actions, God never is completely passive. God is never passive in all human actions. This is a theistic universe, he writes, such that God hardens Pharaoh's hearts, he hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And he's referring to Exodus. If you read through the passage on Exodus, you're going to find both of those phrases. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, the one that's mentioned first is that God hardened his heart. These are far from disjunctive statements, but they're mutually complementary. This is not the only passage where this sort of thing is said. For instance, in 1 Kings 22.22, God sends a lying spirit. So, however we should think about this deluding influence, what we need to be very clear about is that God is not responsible for their sins. Okay, Because we know that God cannot do evil because God is completely good. People are responsible for their own sins. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 12, you see that. In order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure. So the fact that God sent deluding influence to them or on them not God's primary responsibility. That is, He didn't actually commit the sin for them. They are ultimately responsible. It is because they did not believe the truth. A better way to think about this is that God is restraining people from pursuing doctrinal deviance that they ultimately want to pursue. 
And he's doing that through what theologians call common grace. Have you ever heard of that phrase? Common grace. That God sends down rain on the just and the unjust. That God doesn't allow people to be as bad as they possibly could be, right? Thank God He didn't make us as bad as we or he didn't allow us to be as bad as we could. That even an unbeliever, from the time he's born to the time he dies, he never, uh, that he never comes to Christ, he doesn't actually become as bad as he possibly could be, right? We might think of some people in history and go, well, that guy, I think he might have gotten as bad as he possibly could be. But, but most people, because of common grace, you look at them and say, wow, they're actually pretty good people. Yeah, they're not pleasing to God because they don't have Christ, but they're pretty Good people. Well, what's that come from? And that's what theologians call common grace, that God shines down His grace on people and keeps them from being as bad as they possibly could be. Keeps them from being as depraved as they really could be, as their hearts want to be. So a better way to think about that is that God is pouring out His common grace on these people and He doesn't allow them to be as bad as they could be. And then when He sends a diluting influence, it's not as if God you know, kind of empowers them and says, now do the evil. Instead, He removes His hand of common grace. And what happens? They start to run out towards the evil that they want to pursue. They run out towards the doctrinal deviance that they want to pursue, right? It's as if God has them caged in under His common grace And then when he sends a deluding influence, it's like he lifts up his cover of common grace and allows them to go to the extent that they want to. And so in that sense, he does harden Pharaoh's heart, doesn't he? That he removes his common grace to allow allow Pharaoh to be as wicked as he wants to be. God, in those circumstances, is not actively... um, We have to be careful how we say that because he's not passive in anything. He's, he's a sovereign God, completely in control of all things, but He is not responsible for their evil. God has not given up any part of His sovereign power and rule over all things. At any time, He could bring somebody in. He could you know, pull back the reins on any person that He wanted to. Remember what Proverbs 23, I think it is, verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He wants whether believing or unbelieving. So while that might be a troubling passage, we who understand that God is sovereign over all things can reconcile that with the understanding that God is pouring out in a loving way His common grace His common grace on people who don't deserve it. That's exactly what grace is, by the way. Notice the Antichrist's end in verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. So, here's what you ought to think about when you think about the the devastating effect that the lawless one is going to have on this earth. Think about the fact that he is limited. He is limited in his power. He can't do any more than God allows him to do. And he's limited in his time, isn't he? That he's only going to have a certain period of time, seven years really of rain, three and a half of really powerful rain, of, of universal rain, where he will have control over the whole world in a sense. But it's limited because God is the king of the universe. Satan is not. And so Paul's message in this chapter is that the day of the Lord has not come because if the day of the Lord had come, 
then they would notice Christ's unmistakable judgment which would follow the apostasy that would come first by the, by the Antichrist. And we learn in verses 6 and 7 that the apostasy of the Antichrist won't take place until the restrainer has been removed. Verses 6 and 7. The day of the Lord cannot come apart from the one who now restrains. The day of the Lord cannot come apart from the one who now restrains. Verse 6 reads, And you know what restrains him, the man of lawlessness, now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So, Paul's saying, listen, I've already told you this before. When I was there, I told you this. You, 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 I'm just reminding you what I already told you. So, you know, verse 6, what restrains the Antichrist now. And what is that? In other words, the man of lawlessness um, cannot do whatever he wants. He cannot come into power apart from the restrainer being removed. Because something is restraining him. Notice verse 6, You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness has already worked. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So who is this one who restrains? There's wide disagreement among good, and I would say even godly scholars, on what this restraint is. What is it that restrains the Antichrist? Some argue that he is restrained even now by Satan. The only thing that's restraining him from coming into power is Satan. But that doesn't make sense of verse 8, does it? Because look what happens in verse 8. I'm sorry, end of verse 7. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, if the restraining one was Satan, what would that say about during the time of the tribulation? That when Antichrist comes to power, that Satan is removed out of the way? No, that doesn't make sense. So I don't think that that's an accurate way to look at it. Some would argue that the restraining one is the human government. right? Romans 13 talks about the human government being put in place by God to restrain evil and to promote good. So what if it's some empire? Maybe it's some empire that's keeping the Antichrist from coming into power and he's not powerful enough to overcome them. But which human government would be able would have enough power to stop Satan, right? Because this man is actually empowered by Satan himself. The answer to who restrains come when we ask the right question, I think. And here's, the, here's what I think is the right question. Who is powerful enough to hold back Satan from unveiling the man of lawlessness? Who is powerful enough to unveil the, the Antichrist or to, to stop Satan from holding holding Satan back from unveiling the man of lawlessness. And the answer, of course, is not the human government. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not Satan. It's not some other human foe. But it's only God Himself, right? Only God can withhold the man of lawlessness who's being empowered by Satan Himself. That is, the one who now restrains is God. And the way that God restrains Satan from executing His plan as He wants to and as He will is through the Holy Spirit as He resides in Christ's church. Okay, so the way that the, the, the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist is being uh, guarded or protected from being revealed is that the Holy Spirit is working through the hearts of Christ's church. 
Think about how powerful Jesus said that the Spirit-indwelt church is on this earth. Matthew 16, I will build My church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? So it is through the Spirit indwelling His church on the earth that is protecting or, or is keeping, holding back the Antichrist from coming. So, when the Spirit is taken out of the way, verse 7, it is that He is actually, that, that Christ has come and taken the church. The Spirit and twelfth church will be removed prior to the tribulation, right? Because that's when the rapture takes place. Takes place. And at that time, the man of lawlessness can be revealed. Now, we need to think about in what way is the Spirit taken out of the way, verse 7. How is the Spirit taken out of the way? Um, we understand that the Holy Spirit is God and that God is omnipresent everywhere at one time, correct? It's not that you know when we go somewhere, He beats us there. It's that when we go somewhere, He's already there because He's everywhere, right? Titus, um, uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, so when the Spirit is taken out of the way, it's not that He is presently or, or completely removed. We need to think about that carefully because it's not that the Spirit during the tribulation is completely out of the picture. And we know this because what kind of, of action is going to take place in the tribulation? That actually unbelievers will actually accept Christ, won't they? And we know that that can't happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we know that because the regeneration process is actually the impartation of spiritual, spiritual life to those who are spiritually what? Dead. Spiritual life, the impartation of spiritual life is actually the Holy Spirit coming to reside in us. And Titus 3 calls it a renewing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 3, unless a man is born by the Spirit... By the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So no one can come to Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit, I would suggest to you, will be present during the tribulation. But here's what verse 7, I think, means, that he'll be taken out of the way. His primary residence is changed from earth to heaven. Where is the Spirit's primary residence right now? It's in the hearts of Christ's church, correct? Christ's church will be removed, and so the Spirit's primary residence will be in heaven where we are. His job here, in a sense, will be done in that regard. He'll still have work to do. But it's not that His presence is removed. He can never be removed from the, the earth completely, right? Because He's everywhere at one time. It's that the heart's of Christ's church are removed and His primary residence has been moved from earth to heaven. So this man of lawlessness cannot be unveiled until the Spirit's primary residence is changed from earth to heaven. And we see clearly that the power of Satan is very real. And while that power is a serious future threat, it's also a present reality. What does this mean for us? What is all of this talk of the day of the Lord and, and the power of the lawless one and, and Christ's judgment? What does this mean for us? I'll suggest to you four things. Number one, know with certainty 
that we will be gathered together with the Lord. That Christ will come to gather His church. That He will make our home with Him in heaven. That we will reside with God forever. So we will ever be with the Lord. Know with certainty that we will be gathered with the Lord. Number two, know with certainty that Christ will judge the Antichrist and all the wicked. It may feel like we are on the losing end of, a, uh, of the battle and, and maybe even the losing end of the war. Like, we're not going to win this thing. We seem too much like a defeated foe. A- every turn seems like we're being opposed from doing what is right. So know with certainty that Christ will judge the Antichrist and all those who are wicked. He will bring justice on the earth. It may not look like that now, but it is coming. Number three, know with certainty that Satan has limited power. Satan has limited power. Now and for all time, Satan has limited power. God, unlimited. It's as if Satan is on a leash. He can't do all that he wants to. His time is short. His ability is finite. He is not omnipresent. He is a finite creature. He was made by God. And He is limited. God's time is eternal. His ability is infinite. His power is limitless. Be assured, believer, that God is in control. Oh, Satan may have won the argument of today by deceiving people into thinking that He is the sovereign over all the earth. And that He has the control but His sovereignty is a disputed sovereignty and really a false sovereignty. And that will be very clear on the last day when Christ comes to reign. Know with certainty that Satan has limited power. There is no hint for even one second that God has lost or ever will lose control. His sovereignty is over all that is going on. He knows all that will take place. He knows how it will take place because... He planned it all. The song we sing, My Father planned it all. And that means that the end of the man of lawlessness will be one of destruction. The son of destruction will be destroyed. Number four, know for certainty that God reigns. Know for certainty that God reigns. One day, that will be very clear. Today, we have to believe that by faith, don't we? But one day, it will be very clear to all people that God reigns, that Christ is the King of glory, that He is the Lord strong and mighty. Is God trustworthy? Can God be trusted with our lives? Does God know the end from the beginning? Can we trust God with our future? And the, the resounding answer from the Scriptures is that those who trust Him will be recipients of His blessing on that final day. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and how it clears up some of our misunderstandings about You and about the end times and about what we ought to live for. Lord, sometimes we live as if this world is all that there is. And we we exist just for our comforts and we get frustrated when our comforts are taken away from us. But Lord, help us to see very clearly that this world is is not our permanent home. And that that You are, are making all things new. 
and that, that, that real justice will be seen. It seems very much unjust at this time that, that the righteous office often suffer and the wicked prosper. But we know that in the end, everything will be made right and there will be no question who is on the Lord's side. Until that time, give us the strength to obey. Give us the strength to, sh- to express our faith in You. And until then, may we work together to encourage one another for that purpose. In Jesus' name, Amen.